Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the urge to minimize our trauma symptoms and whether or not we can do that so much that we think we're fine. I'm also going to explain what causes us to be traumatized and why some people aren't as affected as we are. I'll dive into the reasons that we can feel like we're making up our mental illnesses, how to talk about sex with a therapist of the opposite sex, and ways that we can cope with extreme anxiety and trauma. And finally, I will dive into the ways to support our children with their anxiety without making ours worse. Without further ado, let's jump into those questions. And question number one says, hi, Katie, is it possible to minimize trauma symptoms without realizing so much that you actually believe you're fine until your therapist says that this looks like something that's still bothering you? I always assumed I'm fine because I've been aware of most of these symptoms, but they're not very frequent and I didn't care about them too much. I didn't have any feelings related to the trauma. I understand that when you list them, it doesn't sound great, but I still think they don't affect me significantly enough to be a problem. Also, would it make sense to start working on the trauma when you only kind of believe that it's a problem? Thanks for your videos. They've been very helpful and I hope you have a great week. You too. Now we have some follow-up questions, but let's dive into this first. It's very, it's incredibly common. I would argue, you know, like nine times out of 10, maybe even 10 out of 10. When we are traumatized, we minimize it. And the reason that we do this is so that we can survive, right? If we don't let ourselves believe that what happened was actually that big of a deal, often not even acknowledging that what happened was truly a trauma or using the real word to describe what happened, like abuse, we do that all the time. And it, I've even heard from some of my uh, my friends and even members of our community that when I talk about trauma, they're like, well, what happened to me doesn't, it doesn't quite, trauma seems like a heavy word. Almost like by us acknowledging what really happened, it's overwhelming. And so you can see why minimizing and validating and all of the kind of coping skills that we utilize when we're traumatized is is done to allow us to continue forward. Because if we think that, you know, something really, really, really terrible has happened to us, it can sometimes be hard for us to get up and do what we have to do every day. And so we stuff it down. We disconnect from it, which is what I think is happening here is that disconnection. So yes, you've minimized the trauma symptoms. You're like, I don't even know if that's really that bad. But also you're saying that you didn't really care too much about them. You don't have any feelings about the trauma. And to me, that's a little red flag to be like, hey, I think we're disconnected. My question, if you were my patient, would then go into feelings that you have about other situations in your life, other relationships. How does that relationship with, you know, your best friend feel or your sister or your boyfriend or girlfriend? Like, I would just be asking questions about that to see if we're completely disconnected or if this is specific to our trauma. Because oftentimes when we disconnect due to trauma, we disconnect from everything. And so I'd be curious if you feel like you can even identify your emotions day to day. Like, can you look at a feelings wheel and tell me at least one or two that you experience? 
And numb is not a feeling. One of my neighbors, we were talking about this and she was like, I thought numb was like a feeling. I was like, why well, feel numb? Where is this on this list? <laughs> so that's not a feeling. But think about it. And the reason, again, the reason we do it is so that we can move forward, be okay, live our life. However, when we go into therapy and we start working on it, not being able to feel the feelings is going to slow the process down. And so, yes, I believe you should still be working on the trauma even though you only kind of believe it's a problem. And so we might not even have to process it, but we need to at least explore that possibility. And the fact that your therapist says that it looks like it's something that's still bothering you, that makes me suspicious of the fact that we're probably disconnected from it for our own emotional safety. And so it is still affecting us. We're just kind of numbed out or ignoring it. And yeah, I mean, I guess I could talk and talk talk about it, but the best thing for you to do is to continue speaking about this with your therapist. I would assume you'd probably start maybe trying to identify emotions or explain how they feel to you. Could be doing a trauma timeline. You said that seeing them like stacked up like that, you're like, oh, it doesn't look very good. And maybe even talking about the fact that you feel disconnected. It doesn't feel that intense. Let's just dig into that. That could be a place to start too. Don't think that you have to jump into trauma work and be able to talk about it and be dysregulated and overwhelmed. Everybody's different. You've been disconnected from it for so long. It's going to take a while for you to probably even acknowledge the feelings that come up about it for you or even acknowledge the ways it's affected you. So give yourself time. But those are some of the ways I think you could get into it and the ways I think you could start working on it with your therapist. But yes, I do believe that it's still a problem, even though you aren't 100% sure about that. Okay. And there was a comment on this as an add-on question. I'm not sure about whether past difficult experiences, which I logically understand may have been traumatic, play a role in my current mental health problems because I struggle to feel anything when thinking about those things. Does this sound familiar? I'm also dealing with current problems like current health issues, which have caused anxiety and depression. My current therapist has seemed like she prefers to focus on those current problems and situations instead of going over past negative events. I'm working on developing more self-compassion to manage the depressive and anxious thought patterns and the health problems, which are keeping me away from my quote unquote healthy coping skills, like exercise and working a lot. I'll start working with a new therapist soon, but I'm not sure whether I should try to bring it up and work through the past experiences as a way to start developing self-compassion or if I should focus on the current situation. Part of me is starting to feel like maybe I do need to actually hear someone acknowledge that those experiences were difficult. Yes, probably because I don't feel able to acknowledge that for myself. But I'm not sure if it's healthy to look for that validation from someone outside of myself. Maybe I can only heal if I can acknowledge it for myself. Okay. Sounds very similar to the first question. There's a couple other things I want to talk about. Number one is that if you are switching therapists, I don't know if it's necessarily a good time to start diving deep into those past experiences. It doesn't mean that we can't. I don't know how long until you switch, but if it's just like a month or two, that's not going to be long enough for you to be able to process them. Um, and so I don't want you to feel like you've opened up Pandora's box and then you're starting with someone new and you're like, Ooh, I don't want that dysregulation to continue any longer than it has to. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with waiting until you talk to another therapist. But just for anybody out there who feels like their therapist focuses on more of the current stuff and doesn't dive into the deeper past stuff, you can say something to them. It's your therapy. It's your time. It's your treatment. Speak up and say, hey, you know, I'd really like to dig into more of my past experiences. I feel like we focus on the present, which is helpful, but 
I feel like my issues are still coming from things that happened in the past. You know, it's okay to push for that. Yes, there are types of therapy like solution-focused therapy, which is much more present-based, but that might mean that that type of therapy slash therapist isn't a good fit. So I am glad you're switching therapists, and that's kind of why I'm like, you might, for this particular person, you might just want to wait until you get to see somebody else, but immediately let them know that the last therapist didn't, you know, spend any time on past experiences, and that's something that that is important to you. Because we always want to make sure that our therapy is benefiting us, that it's what we need. Yes, I know, and I do want to acknowledge that therapy can be challenging and a therapist can ask us to do things and focus on things we don't want to. Therapy shouldn't be comfortable, but we should feel like we're moving towards the goals that we have. The goal being like, I don't want to be affected by my past experiences every day, right? That's perfectly fine and acceptable. And so it's okay to advocate for yourself that way. Okay. Um, Let me see. I want to make sure I answered everything else. Okay, I see here, you know, if you want to bring up past experiences or should you focus on the current situation? I I think that it's a balance. I think we should be acknowledging the past experiences and, and working through them, maybe understanding their role in our life, how they affect us today, as well as being offered coping skills for the now. That's the balance of therapy, processing the past so it doesn't dictate our future, but also giving us some coping skills and tools for right now, because right now is probably uncomfortable. I feel like by the time we reach out for for a therapist, for therapy, our current is not good, right? And so I want to make sure you have tools for now, but don't just ignore the past, okay? I think I got every other part of this question. And you said, oh, I'm not sure if it's healthy to look for that validation for someone outside of myself. For starters, it's okay and it's healthy. Yes, we need to come around to the fact of acknowledging it for ourselves and being able to give that to ourselves, but there's nothing wrong or unhealthy with seeking it out from a therapist, from a professional first. Now, the problems can arise when we try to seek out that validation, that acknowledgement from like outside ourselves, from other people who aren't professionals, because that can be detrimental to our relationships. They can uh, say things that are really harmful. It can be like more traumatizing, more upsetting. It could be seen um, as attention seeking and we can get, people can be really nasty and it can make us feel even worse. There's a lot of ways that can go awry because we can't control other people. And I'm not saying you can control a medical or a mental health professional, but I am saying that if you talk to your therapist about it, they're going to acknowledge, validate and support and then work with you to make it better. And so that's really the healthy place for you to seek that type of validation. So go for it. It's totally normal and part of the process. Now, there was one more add-on to this as about trauma. Is OCPD, otherwise known as obsessive compulsive personality disorder, caused by trauma or are we born with it? Would, for example, trying to learn every single word in a language book be part of the obsessiveness? Now, the thing about OCPD or obsessive compulsive personality disorder is that unlike OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCPD is what we call egosyntonic, meaning it feels good. We can feel somewhat superior. We actually kind of prefer to do the obsessions and compulsions. It feels good. OCD, on the other hand, is not. It's egodystonic. It doesn't feel good. We don't like it. Um, it's uncomfortable. We wish it would stop, okay? So just keep that in mind. Now, could OCD or OCPD be uh, caused by trauma? Yes. Um, I don't know the exact percentage. I'd have to dig into research more. But yes, I do know that it can be correlated with trauma. It's not like one-to-one, but it can be part of that because all of the obsessive-compulsive disorders are anxiety-driven in many ways. 
And we all know that anxiety slash hypervigilance can kind of come along with a PTSD diagnosis. Okay, the last thing that I want to talk about here and I kind of want to leave you with is we can talk about genetic predispositions all we want. We can say, hey, I have a family member who has bipolar disorder or has OCD or has anxiety. And yes, that increases our likelihood. But there's also this key component we have to remember that we can have the DNA slash genetic predisposition. But epigenetics that lay on top of those genes have to turn on the gene, meaning I could have a genetic predisposition for schizophrenia, let's say, but I haven't had a triggering event that has turned on that gene. I believe, and this is just me hypothesizing, and other people kind of agree with this too, that especially when it comes to schizophrenia, it's usually around 18 to 21 when men have their first you know, psychotic break. And females are a little bit later, let's say, I think it's like 20 to 25 is like the average. But either way, you could argue that those that time in our life is disruptive and stressful. We could be moving away from home, going to college or a trade school. We could be moving out on our own. We could be starting our own family, meeting people. Like It can be a lot of transition, a lot of stress, and that could be that epigenetic book that turns that gene on. That's just me like hypothesizing, kind of getting off on a tangent here, but just remember that, that even if we or quote unquote, like predisposed or could be born with an issue, something has to happen to turn it on. It doesn't just automatically, you know, happen. So just remember that our genes aren't everything. Okay. Moving on to question number two says, hi, Katie, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what can tip the scales from a person experiencing trauma to being quote unquote traumatized. Can we ever cause ourselves to be traumatized by our reaction to the trauma? When I was eight, I lost my dad suddenly to a treatable illness. I developed PTSD and DID, uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, DID, dissociative identity disorder, as a result. At least my psychologist and I are pretty sure that that's the cause. Again, that stressful event, right? There's no evidence of any other core traumas besides a bit of bullying in school. I've always struggled to believe that it was quote unquote bad enough to cause these issues. However, I did torment myself afterwards every night, blaming myself. If I had noticed that he was sick, maybe he would have gotten treatment sooner and he'd still be alive. If I'd done more, he'd still be here. I really tortured myself with that every single night. Eventually, it slowed down to just special occasions like birthdays, which is messed up. I know. Until a few years ago, I realized it was the equivalent of emotional self-harm. Yes. So I forced myself to stop. That was the only time I allowed myself to think about my dad for a long time. So I don't remember much about him anymore. Do you think the way I tormented myself after we lost him caused my mental illness? Do our actions after trauma contribute to our likelihood to develop a trauma disorder? Thank you. Okay. Now we have, um, it looks like two follow-ups after this, but let's dive into this because for those of you who don't know, we can be traumatized by something and we can develop PTSD, okay? Those are two different things. Now, being traumatized really just means that we experienced a trauma. We were exposed to a traumatic experience. And a traumatic experience could loosely be defined as a, an experience that we witnessed where we feared for the life and safety of ourselves or someone else, period. So trauma can affect us in a lot of different ways. And it's not up to, you know, me or honestly, really anybody else to tell you you were traumatized or not. It's about the symptoms because here's the thing. So if I witnessed that experience, something was traumatizing, I was worried about my own safety. Or let's say I saw Sean doing something, I was worried about his safety. That can be traumatizing to me. However, my level of resilience, meaning my ability to bounce back, 
is going to determine whether or not I develop PTSD. Okay, that's the difference. And that level of resilience also uh, talked about as the window of tolerance, right? It's my ability to have something happen, be able to process it and move on. Everybody has different levels of this. Siblings have different levels of this. That's why you and your brother and sister can go through the same traumatic experience and maybe only one of you is affected or maybe you're fine and your sister really struggles, right? That's why that happens is because some of us are more likely to be social and have a good support system. We reach out to people, we talk about what's going on, we feel better. Some of us are more likely to have innate coping skills. Like maybe we just journal by nature. We love to write. Maybe we put our our emotions into music or painting or sports or whatever, right? We can have more coping skills and then therefore feel more able to weather that storm. But everybody's different. This is not a time for judgment. This is just like, hey, are there things that I could maybe do with more regularity that feel good for me, right? build up my resilience. And that's really the difference. So this question, the two, what tips the scales are level of resilience, period. Now, the fact that you beat yourself up about this and essentially like emotionally self-harmed yourself about your father's death makes it harder for you to weather that storm. Because if we think about it, right, every time we talk trash to ourselves and we're like, you should have fucking known, I can't believe you did this, right? Harmful things, that's not your responsibility, but it, it can feel like it is and it can get really complicated in our head, right? As we continue to beat ourselves up about it, that wears at our resilience. That window of tolerance gets less and less and could make it so that we develop PTSD where if maybe we, if we didn't beat ourselves up so much after, we might not have. Do you see what I mean? Because maybe you had enough resilience to bounce back from losing a father. And as someone who's also lost their father, I'm so sorry it's very hard and it it's definitely a grief is a hard and complicated thing. So give yourself time and space. Okay. But that could have done it. I hope that that's clear and makes sense. So yes, I think the way that you tormented yourself could have made it more likely for you to develop PTSD. And I do think our actions after a trauma contribute to the likelihood or unlikelihood that we're going to develop PTSD or any other mental illness. Because if we reach out for support and get that right away. We may never develop PTSD. Okay. Another person said, Katie, I have a question. Is it tangent that is uh, tangentially related? Can you please clarify something about the definition of trauma for me? Can verbal bullying lead to trauma, even if the bully never threatens anybody's life or safety? For example, telling someone they're stupid or making them feel bad about themselves or making school really uncomfortable, but the person is never able, is never at risk for physical injury. I always wonder this when you define trauma as a threat to someone's safety. So I thought I'd ask. Thank you. I'm so glad that you asked. Safety is not just physical. Safety is emotional. So safety can mean a lot of things. Our brains automatically jump to physical, which is part of the reason why like emotional abuse, emotional neglect is never, we can struggle to acknowledge that it was truly abuse because I didn't have any bumps and bruises. I wasn't sexually assaulted. I don't have any broken bones, right? So we can assume that in order to be harmed, we have to be physically harmed. No, no, no. In order to be harmed, we have to feel threatened. And a threat can be emotional or physical. And so if we don't feel emotionally safe, that bullying sounds like it was traumatic. You didn't feel safe at school because you were going to be tormented. No one likes being talked down to, trashed, 
uh, said that they're stupid, fat, ugly, whatever, that's, that's abuse and that's trauma. And so I'm glad that you asked that because the definition of trauma is about safety, but emotional safety is just as important as physical safety and can be just as detrimental. Okay. Another add-on says, how do we know that certain symptoms are PTSD and not anxiety? I'm always hypervigilant when I'm alone at home because I fear that someone will break in. Or when I go outside, I, off, I look around often so that I don't get, don't get kidnapped. I'm also really suspicious about people touching me and about men in general, although I don't re- recollect any trauma. I rather fear that men will kill me if I do something wrong. That's interesting. Could something like agoraphobia or emotional neglect cause these symptoms too? What do you think? Now, PTSD is different from anxiety. They do share that hypervigilance experience can be part of an anxiety disorder. However, the difference is in PTSD, we avoid specific situations, people, places, things that remind us of the past trauma. Now for you, you're like, I don't really remember anything, but your anxieties are very specific. It's not like, you have to remember generalized anxiety disorder means we have uncontrollable worry about things in our life. And those things are usually broad. Like I worry about my finances. I worry about my career. I worry about my relationships. And that worry gets really, it's just really intense. And we can't shut it off no matter how hard we try. It almost can feel like as we try harder, the worse it gets. But your fear uh, about like men and having people touch you, that sounds a little more PTSD-like to me. That's not technically part of a diagnosis of anxiety. I mean, although we could argue like with social anxiety, like not wanting to go outside, that does sound like more agoraphobia. But I do want you to know that we can have both. We can have agoraphobia or an anxiety disorder and PTSD. But this suspicion of people touching you and thinking that men are going to kill you, those sound more PTSD related to me because that isn't like a random anxious thought. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if we can challenge that. I'd be very curious. Anyway, I'd bring that up in therapy. My suspicions are that a lot of those symptoms are PTSD related, although some are anxiety related. And unfortunately, we can be diagnosed with both. Now, um, can things like or uh, agoraphobia and emotional neglect cause these symptoms? Yes, they can. And emotional neglect, by the way, is abuse and is a trauma. So that could be why. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. It says, hi, Katie. I was wondering why I always feel like I'm making up my mental disorder. No matter how hard I try to convince myself, I always go back into the same thought. I constantly spend hours searching up why I would feel this way. And no matter how much reassurance I get, it never helps this thought go away. I always end up thinking, what if I'm just lying to myself? Or what if I've just convinced myself to believe my own lie? This makes me feel like a horrible person. And it makes it really hard to make any progress in healing because I don't even believe that I deserve to feel better from something that potentially might not exist. I feel so stuck and confused because how do I know for sure that I'm not making it all up? I've started to get really aware of all my body movements, like my shaking legs and fidgeting fingers. And now I feel like I've made that up too. My question is, how do I know what, how do I know that I actually even have anxiety and depression? And P.S. I'm sorry if this is so long and confusing. And also, I'm truly thankful for all that you do. You are a lifesaver. Of course, I'm glad I could be there for you. And it's not too long. It's not confusing. This is very common. A lot of people worry that they're making up their mental illness. And my question is always the same. Why would you want to make it up? How does it benefit you? Are you comfortable? Do you like it? 
there you have your answer. I saw this quote recently. I shared it on my Instagram stories because it really, it was so just poignant. It was, it was important. And it was for ADHD people, but I think we can apply this here as well. And the quote anyways said, if you were being lazy, wouldn't you be enjoying yourself? Food for thought, right? And if you were making up your mental disorder, wouldn't you be excited about it and feel good? If it's all made up. It also means you could just turn it off. So in the days when it's really bugging you, getting in the way of you wanting to do what you need to do, why wouldn't you just turn it off if you were making it up, right? Sometimes we have to check our facts because ment- having a, a mental illness of any kind, any level is fucking uncomfortable and it's terrible and it ruins things that we really want to enjoy. So check your facts on that. Am I having fun? Does this feel good? Is this something I can turn on and off? Because sure, there are people out there who will fake a mental illness. Those people tend to probably be somewhere in the like narcissistic tendencies slash antisocial personality disorder, what we call colloquially as sociopath. You know, they're in that space. That percentage is very low in our world, by the way. I know everybody wants to say that they have so many narcissists in their life. They exist, but it's not everybody. You're not that person. And the fact that you're even asking and you feel bad about it leads me to believe that this is not, you're not making it up. So I hope that that helps you kind of clear that up and clarify. Now, there's a comment that says, as an add-on, I feel similar, like I'm just collecting disorders. I've diagnosed OCD, depression, eating disorder, social anxiety. I'm pretty sure I have generalized anxiety and maybe even agoraphobia too. Is it even possible to have so many? Also, I feel like I need to collect something that reminds me of every single one, like a book about every disorder. That's weird, right? Why do I do that? Is it fake? Often we, I would argue, I'd be curious actually about whether or not we have trauma in our past. When we have these bigger, what I call like, like a bomb dropped kind of illness, we have something like a trauma or we have uh, addiction in our family and where we have, you know, some kind of abuse. Again, all traumas, but I'm just calling them out differently because some people don't like to think of them as traumas. It can lead to a lot of different mental illnesses, especially if we don't get help soon for them, like early on. Because think of it, like if you have really, really bad social anxiety, let's just start there. We don't want to be out in front of people. It gets really overwhelming. So we don't like to leave our house, moves into agoraphobia. Then we're so isolated and we don't like to be around people so much that we try to cope with all of that overwhelm and all of that discomfort by overeating or undereating. Hence, enter eating disorder. You know, eating disorders are can be about this like faux sense of control. I feel like I need to control things. And as my anxiety builds, I feel like I need to do something to bring control back around. Oh, OCD. And it's all really hard and I feel really bad about everything, depression, right? I don't, I'm not saying this to minimize any of your diagnoses. I'm just saying that it makes sense how they're kind of connected and how they can kind of work together to feed each other. And it's incredibly common for us to have more than one diagnosis. It's actually incredibly rare, especially for those of us who are struggling to function in our lives to only have one diagnosis. And I always argue that there's usually something bigger going on, like I said, like a trauma to lead to all of these because a lot of these, especially like the OCD eating disorder, you know, those and even agoraphobia are kind of like our coping mechanisms. It's like our brain's way of trying to make sense and and alleviate some of the stress that we feel because of, you know, our anxiety, our trauma, things like that. And so 
you're not making them up again. If you were making them up, you'd be having fun and you could turn them on and off. Are you doing that? Check in with yourself. It is possible to have so many. It's actually incredibly common. And wanting to collect something that reminds you of every single one, it might be your way of kind of taking back the control maybe a little bit, or maybe you want to learn more about them. Like you said, like a book. It's very normal. I have tons of patients who want to have workbooks about each of their illnesses because they're like, I'd like to learn more so I can do more. It's like our way of trying to take back some of that control. It can feel like things are out of control when we get a new diagnosis or a new mental illness, right? We're like, well, so that could be part of it. It could also be part of the reminder of like, you know, I, I do struggle with this. It could be maybe your own way of trying to validate because it sounds like you aren't sure. And so maybe we're doing that to try to assuage that upset or that concern. Um, it's not fake though. Again, if you can turn it off and you're enjoying yourself, then it is. But if not, it's not. Another person says, I feel this way about my PTSD. Some of the memories of my sexual, I think it's sexual abuse, but maybe it's sexual assault, it's SA, are blurry and unclear. Sometimes I'm scared I just imagined it or remembered it all wrong. How can I really trust my memories? Could my flashbacks be hallucinations? What if instead of PTSD, I'm a schizophrenic? My therapist says it's clearly PTSD and that all of my symptoms are trauma symptoms, but it's so hard for me to accept that people I love hurt me that way. There we have it. But intense flashbacks keep coming after all these years, and sometimes I still don't know how to deal with that. Now, if you were schizophrenic, you would have hallucinations off and on, not just in flashback form. You'd have hallucinations of people around you that aren't really around you. One of my friends, Cody Green, he's a creator on Instagram. He has schizophrenia, and he uses the camera on his phone to film areas and then he watches it back to see if his hallucinations are there because he wants to make sure they're they are hallucinations or they're not. Are you doing that? Do you are you worried? Do you really are you talking to people that aren't there? Are you feeling things on your body that that like you want to rip your skin off like it's like a tactile hallucination? Do you feel like somebody grabs you all of a sudden? I can see why you could associate body memories with that, but it's not the same. Do you have uh, delusions? meaning firmly held false beliefs about the world. Like no matter what anybody says to you, you're like, I know God is talking to me through my television. I know that the CIA is spying on me. I know that the world is going to end on this specific day. Those are just some of the most common ones that I hear. Do you have those kinds of things going on? Because that's schizophrenia. And arguably you talk to your therapist and they say it's clearly PTSD. So I have to side with them. I've never had a person with schizophrenia have flashbacks as hallucinations. Their hallucinations are happening now in real time and they're terrified usually of them. I know people on the media want to portray people, you know, with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder as violent. No, they are not violent. They are usually just scared because of their hallucinations and their delusions. So that's the part about flash. I don't believe flashbacks can be hallucinations. And also when it comes to trusting your memories, I'd encourage you to pick up if you can handle it. The Body Keeps the Score. It's an amazing book. I also, if that might be, depends on where you're at. That book can be very intense, just FYI. It's amazing. But also even my book, Traumatized, you can grab that or go to your local library and get it. If you can't afford it, they have copies there. I talk about trauma memories, where they're stored, how we can trust them, why we can trust them, and what we know about them. And they talk about it also in the Body Keeps the Score. That's why I mentioned that too. Overall, we know study after study that we can trust our memories, our trauma memories specifically. They don't change. 
over time and they followed people for years. So yes, you can trust them. We've researched it. We know that we can. Yes, I hope that that clears that up. Okay, now we have another add-on and it said, I struggle with the exact same issues. I would love some advice on how to move through this. I keep having flashbacks come up that slap me in the face and are so hard to ignore. But once I calm down from them, I go right back into doubting myself. And why do I constantly doubt my own struggles and anxiety? I can be really struggling to make it through a day so much so that I can't eat or leave the house and yet doubting and questioning that I'm even struggling at the same time. I feel like I'm so at ground or I'm still at ground zero struggling to just accept what has happened because it's too much. I feel like everything is just too much. What can we do to get to that point where we can believe our own pain? It takes time. Be patient with yourself. Again, like I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, that urge to minimize or invalidate a traumatic experience is adaptive. It helps us survive. It encourages us to push through. It makes sure that we can survive through our life and keep going. That's why. But always check in with yourself. Can I turn it on and off? Am I enjoying myself? Those are indicators that we're making it up. And it's doubtful that you are, okay? And that's, I mean, through the process of healing and through the like therapy, you will get to a point where you can believe your own pain. It just takes some time. Sometimes it's hard for us to acknowledge because again, we've been minimizing and invalidating it for years as a way to survive and push forward, okay? Let's move on to question four. It says, hey, Katie, I'm a female with a male therapist and we're starting to talk about sex. I've had a few issues come up as an adult when I've been with men and I sometimes question if he has done similar things to women or to what extent he has been disrespectful, even though I don't know the answer. I want to get very angry at him sometimes. Is this normal? Yes. And is this some kind of projection or transference? It's like you read my mind. It's transference. I can bring this up to him when the time is right. And I feel very comfortable talking to him even more than when I had female therapists. That's wonderful. Thank you for all you do. We appreciate it. Of course. Now, this is transference. Because you've had traumatic experiences with men in your life, especially around sexual activity or sexual intimacy, you're transferring on to him your experience with other men. And then you're reacting out of it. So I get angry. You're like, you fucking asshole. Because all of the upset and anger that you have from your past experiences are being placed onto him. And the reason that we have transfer and the transference and the reason that this happens is because we're finally in a position where it kind of feels safe, at least somewhat, to express what we wanted to express back then and couldn't. And it gives us a place to work it out. So that is what's happening. It's very normal. I'm glad that you feel safe talking to him. Because when I first started reading this question, I was like, oh, maybe we need a female therapist. But it can actually be incredibly healing and beneficial to be able to talk to someone of the same gender or sex as the person that we initiated, you know, some sexual contact that was harmful or abusive. It can be great for us to engage with that same type of person in that way because it allows for a deeper level of healing sometimes. And then it means that we can actually talk about it, which could allow us to practice in future relationships, talking about what's okay and not okay in the bedroom and what we're comfortable with and what we're not not comfortable with when it comes to sexual intimacy. So I'm really, really glad that you found someone you can communicate with. You feel comfortable talking to him. Bring up the fact that you get angry. Tell him that you, you know, you believe it's transference and you just want to learn more about it. Because the way to actually manage transference and kind of push through it is to acknowledge it, talk about it. You get to be angry. He gets to hold that space for you, allow for you to get angry. And we get to talk about the times that you wished you could have expressed that to other people. It can be incredibly helpful in healing. So be patient with yourself, okay? It gets better. It's totally normal what you're going through. And I'm just proud of you for even acknowledging that it's happening. Yay. 
Moving on to question number five. It says, hey, Katie, I hope your week's going great. So far, so good. It says, I was wondering how you can cope with extreme anxiety and trauma in a healthy way. I'm still at school and at this point physically cannot go into lessons. I don't know why. It's just like my brain won't let me, even if I want to. I try my best to, but there's just this really daunting, exhausting, anxiety-provoking feeling whenever I think about it. Any advice about this or how to cope with it? On top of this, I get bullied. There we have it. And I'm really struggling at home too. I have no one I can really trust and I keep either dissociating, struggling with disordered eating or self-harming. I'm really scared. It feels like something bad is going to happen all the time for no reason. Any advice? I don't know how to cope with any of this. Also, how would you as a therapist help a client struggling with this? Thank you so much. I hope you have a brilliant day. You too. Okay, lots to unpack here, a ton to talk about. Now, first of all, the fact that you're getting bullied and you're struggling at home too means that there's no safe space for you. So of course your anxiety is through the roof and you're feeling scared all the time. And that fact that you've said you feel like something bad is always just gonna happen, that's what we call generalized anxiety disorder. We have uncontrollable worry. Like, and it's worry that, it's like fabricated, right? It's it's something that could potentially happen, but we don't really have any facts to support it. And because this is so bad and the way that you're trying to cope, because you don't know how to cope with any of this, you're trying to cope by self-harming, um, you know, dissociating and disordered eating. So you're using these unhealthy coping skills, but I'm not saying that to shame you. It's totally normal. You're using what you have. You're doing the best that you can, okay? You're hanging in there. I'm proud of you. Keep hanging in there. I believe, first of all, we need to get you into therapy ASAP. If they have it at your school, that's great. If once we're over the age, I think it's like 13 in most states, you don't have to have your parents like support to do it as long as you can show up, you can participate and you can afford it. And, th- and schools usually offer it for free or very, very low cost. So let's look into that or talk to a teacher, talk to somebody, let's get you some support. And then if you if your parents are helpful or supportive, I believe we should see a psychiatrist because it sounds like you're drowning in your anxiety symptoms. And I want to get you some relief from that. And medication gets our head above water so that then we can participate in the therapy. So consider that, okay? And write all your questions and concerns down. Is it going to cause this? What about that? How would I know? What are the symptoms, the side effects I should look out for? How long till I feel better? All that. You can ask all that. Usually it's like three or four weeks till we feel the full effect. You can have anything from, you know, weight gain, increased hunger. You can have like nausea. You can, there's there's side effects you should know about. So ask them, okay? Now, the things that I would do with a client who is struggling with this is I would first try to find some ways for them to kind of regulate their nervous system, get them kind of calm down a little bit more. And that could be like a full body shake. That could be dunking our face in cold water. It could be checking the facts. That's another tool that we use where you look and see if you have any facts to support that anxious thought. I also have my patients sometimes, uh, it depends on the patient, but if the anxiety is not too like spinning out, I might have them consider like tracking some of their most common anxious thoughts. And then we can kind of challenge them a little bit. Um, Another thing that I might have someone do would be to journal if it's helpful. Breathing exercises I could go to, but a lot of my anxious patients don't really like it. They feel like it makes it worse. I usually tell my patients to move their bodies. That movement can be really helpful in healing. Those are just a few of the things. Having a supportive person or friend at school can help us get through it. Speaking up to a teacher about the bullying could help too. But those, I mean, I know that's a lot that I just threw at you. So I'll just stop there. But those are just some of the many ways that I would assist a patient. I know 
There's a lot to this, but anxiety is completely treatable and manageable. We just have to get you some proper support. And that can happen through, you know, finding a therapist in your area, potentially getting on some medication for a while so that we can get a a handle on this Um, and getting more support at school. And your therapist can do that for you. I've gone to so many school meetings for my patients where I either advocate for them to get more time on a test or I speak up about the fact that they're being bullied and they need to do something about it. Let your therapist be the, the pushy person in that, you know? because you're not supposed to be able to cope with this all on your own. Life is tough. We need support. Let's reach out and get you some, okay? Final question, question number six says, hey, Katie, can you talk about the ways that I could help myself when I'm trying to stay calm and present when dealing with my child's anxiety, but her anxiety is only deeply triggering my anxiety? How do I work through this? I need to help her in the moment, but I struggle to not get triggered myself. Thanks for all your wonderful advice. My best advice for you is two-pronged. Number one, we need to take care of ourselves first. Children often reflect our own inability to handle our emotions and manage our anxieties. And so I'm not surprised that she's struggling with it because you struggle with it. Also, there's a huge genetic component, right? So take care of yourself. Let's utilize our own tools. Like I said, putting our face in cold water, doing full body shakes. Are we on medication? Is that something we want to consider? Are we in therapy? Are we paying attention to what causes our anxiety to build? Do you have maybe we lowered our sugar intake or our caffeine intake? Are we making sure we're drinking enough water, getting enough sleep? I know those things sound simple or maybe silly, but they're very important. So let's take care of ourselves first. Okay, that's number one. Second is to be honest with her about your experience. Now, oh, that allows for, I know it feels like counterintuitive. Like, why would I tell her if I'm having a hard time? She's having a hard time to let her know that you know what it's like to some extent, not that you're saying you know her experience, but it can help our children to see us acknowledge our own struggles and explain what has helped us. I don't know if this will work for you, but what has helped me is X, Y, Z. You want to try that with me? Let's full body shake together. Even if you're triggered, you can still do some of those tools together. Let's dunk our faces in cold water. Let's go for a walk around the block. Let's move this out. Let's put on some funny music and dance. There are things that you could do together. And that I think not only is an opportunity to connect more with your child and teach them some of the ways that could help them. You're essentially offering them coping skills at a young age. It's beautiful. But you're also helping yourself. Amazing. And making sure that you're getting your child the help that they need. I'm sure you already are because you're even reaching out to me, which means you're a wonderful parent and you're doing the best that you can. But just be honest. Children don't expect us to be perfect, but it's when we pretend to be perfect when we're not and we express these other symptoms that they get confused and then they don't understand and they think they're crazy. And But, you know, or maybe maybe everybody feels like this and then they don't speak up and they don't get help. So let's use that and see if that can can help things a little bit. Okay, and this doesn't mean you have to overshare or dump on your child. That's not it either. Just letting them know, hey, I struggle with this too. These are the things that work for me. And another key piece and kind of the last bit I want to leave you with is that if our child or even a friend, anybody in our life, but in this specific case, let's talk about children. If a child reaches out and says like, hey, mom or dad, I'm having a hard time. I feel uncomfortable. I feel like I'm depressed. I feel like I'm anxious, blah, blah, blah. Whatever terms they put to it, it's okay to ask them, hey, do you want me to listen to let you vent? Or do you want me to listen to help you? Do you want me to listen to fix? Or do you want support or do you want assistance? Another good question, right? There's different ways we can ask it. You can ask it however, but it's really important for us to 
sometimes check in with that because a child might be just wanting to vent and needing us to say, yeah, that's really hard. I'm so sorry. A friend might also want that, but or they also might want some tangible tips and tools like, hey, I'm drowning here. Help me. So ask before offering because we don't want to assume and then push them away by them thinking that we think we know better or we can do better or we're, we just want to fix it and make them go away. We don't want to do that either. So check in with your child and see what they're needing. But let's also utilize this as a way to engage and connect more with our child. Help them see us as a real person, right? Struggling too. We don't have all the answers, but we can work together to feel better. Okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. It really does help. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.